Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Long Shot Podcast brought to you by 342 Productions. As always, I'm your host, Duncan Robinson, and I am, of course, here with my good friend, Davis Reed. Davis, how are we doing? I'm great. As always, it's an honor to be here. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. I'm in, I'm in Miami. I'm excited about this week's episode. We, uh, we got some fun guests. We got two. We missed out on a guest last week, so we decided to bring yeah. two back for the two people. Two for one. Two for one week. special. Yeah, a little, little two for one special, uh, just like at your local Olive Garden, if you will. Um, but yeah, we got a great conversation with Jay Billis, uh, where we're going to touch on everything college basketball from the NCAA tournament on to the kind of player empowerment movement, which he is very much an advocate of. And we also have a good friend of mine, uh, Dylan DeChair, spelled death ear, pronounced DeChair, uh, who is a writer and author for golf magazine and golf.com and also a former professional golfer uh, and a williams college alum both interviews have birds chirping in the back which i actually think is very peaceful uh, but just keep that in mind when when listening yeah you know living down in miami i i don't really get seasons like i did growing up in the northeast in the midwest so it was just really nice to hear the birds just from the standpoint of it just felt like I was I was back home. I felt like it was springtime. You know, spring is upon us. Uh, I wouldn't know because it's literally just 85 and sunny every day in Miami. Not that I'm complaining, but uh, there's nothing quite like a nice spring day. We got in an argument the other day about how uh, seasons still do exist in Miami. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Not really the same spring feeling down there. Hey, I wanted to start with... Uh, so social media has had a gif going semi-viral of you dancing at michigan and the people need to know where that's coming from what it's all about i know that you hate it but it's an incredible video uh, that has been repurposed on our twitter can you just give the people a little insight about what that's all about i think semi-viral is probably giving it too much credit i think Eh. it's being talked about in in certain circles, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I was uh, originally very disappointed because I thought it was you who had unearthed it uh, to the world and somehow found it. And it wasn't. I wasn't happy about it, uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know how people find this stuff. I don't know how it comes to light. Uh, I guess all that matters is that it has. And to be honest with you, I see, I just see like the thumbnail of the video and I haven't even watched it because I, I literally cannot bring myself to watch it. Uh, I remember that moment. We uh, uh, a couple of my teammates at Michigan. We went on like kind of like a sports show that was done by some students. And I know what transpired uh, of me attempting to dance. And I I just don't want to have to relive that because it's uh, it's painful. I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe I've seen that full video. It lives somewhere on the internet, so it is possible to find people. Don't don't encourage people to go out and find it, please. No, don't no, no. Do that. I want to give you a little credit. I believe you win. It's a dance competition, and I think you win. You're winning every time you dance. You're going up against somebody else, and I'm pretty sure you win each time. So you know, it's some credit to you. You you move a little bit. You're kind of hitting it a little bit, but you know, I understand that maybe it's not the most comfortable thing for you to see. I, what I lack in ability, I make up for with effort and passion. And that's a metaphor for life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're bringing it. Yeah. Uh, at least to the, the, the best of my abilities, but yeah, please, 
please do not go out and, and find the rest of that video because that should be put away and, and buried for good. Uh, all right, we can get to basketball. I wanted to ask you about playing with uh, Bielitza and Vic. Last week, we kind of talked about what the additions were like to the team. You hadn't played with Vic yet. You'd only played a game or two with Bielitza. There are now a couple more under your belt. Um, you know, for me as, as a fan watching Vic, it's just clear how much he helps defensively. That guy is just everywhere, it seems. Um, and he's so explosive offensively. I think it's amazing. Those first two games, I, I believe, he's playing with you guys without even having a shoot around. Um, now he finally gets a practice or two under his belt. Obviously, it's just going to get more comfortable as you guys go. But uh, any takeaways from you? Just playing a couple games with those guys? Yeah, obviously, Vic is an incredible athlete. And you know his combination of size, speed, and strength just allows us to have more defensive versatility, which is obviously a huge thing in the NBA these days. I think, you know, whether you're talking about guys coming out of college or free agents or, or prospects, one of the first questions that's asked is always how many positions can they guard? And it just allows you defensively to do different things. And, you know, Vic's versatility, his ability to guard smaller guards and then turn around and guard wings and then if needed switch on to bigger players as well um, has definitely I think unlocked uh, you know just our potential defensively and and belly uh, his versatility offensively his feel you know the way he's uh, he plays with the ball in his hands and without the ball uh, I think is is definitely going to continue to help us so I think we touched on it last week kind of more in depth but I, they're two really good additions that I think are just going to help us moving forward. Does Victor sing in the locker room? I haven't heard him sing yet, um, but uh, you know I'm, I'm waiting patiently. I, I really enjoyed his uh, performance on the Mass Singer. <laughs> Admittedly, I didn't see it live, but I, I've looked up some some YouTube stuff, and obviously the guy can go. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's like you dancing. It's like you know what I mean. Like you, if you if you look for it, it's all over YouTube. Yeah, you you really need to stop pushing this. Um, we're gonna keep this front of show relatively brief because we have two guests so we actually want to get to an exciting little giveaway that we have going i know we talked about the top shot that's still in the works we're kind of you know working through the uh, the nuts and bolts if you will but we have a a uh, a fun one we talked about it being spring yes what else comes with spring davis let's see we've got i believe prom season is around the corner so prom season is upon us and we have teamed up with Hugo Boss, and we want to give away some suits, uh, custom suits. You know, you're going to get made to measure, fitted, the whole thing. Doesn't have to be a prom thing. Uh, you know, maybe you're, you know, with people taking the vaccine now, uh, which is exciting. Maybe you're heading back into the office and you need a suit. Or just you know, stepping out and you want to look great. Maybe just stepping out. Uh, so we are actually, we're giving away some suits. It's really simple. You just got to follow us on IG and Twitter and shoot us a message. Let us know why you need a suit. Obviously, we can't give everybody a suit, but we do want to help some people out. Um, we're going to do everything we can. So hit us up. Uh, Hugo Boss, of course, is going to help us out as well. And yeah, you're going to get a nice uh, Hugo Boss suit, potentially. Obviously, we're going to pick a limited amount of winners, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, tell us just why. You know, Give us maybe a compelling reason, and I think that'll ultimately help your chances. Yep. Uh, we've also got wedding season coming up, which is, is like two years of weddings packed into one summer. Uh, another glaring reason that you might need a suit. 
We do have wedding season coming up, uh, and, and you are partaking. We are partaking. I'm not Correct. getting married, but I'll be there. Um, so, yeah, that's fun. We'll just uh, transition right here into our Reddit question of the day. What do you got? Yeah, we've got – I'm kind of excited for this one. It's a little bit different than, than what we've done before. You Usually, we kind of write out the Reddit question so you know what I'm going to ask. This one, I have not done that because I want to get your gut reaction to some of these questions. So, this post comes from – LA Young He, and they asked to name the first player that comes to mind when you hear the following. So there are a couple different things I'm going to give you. I want your gut impulse first player that comes to mind. This can be across any era, any player, all time. Okay. You with me? Yes. There are eight. There are eight words I'm going to give you. You give me the first player that comes to mind. Got it. All right. I'm starting with athletic. Russell Westbrook. Okay, I'm gonna need you to be a little quicker on the okay. next ones. All right. All right. Crafty. Allen Iverson. Hustle. TJ McConnell. Defense. Tony Allen. Playmaker. Chris Paul. Flamethrower. Steph Curry. That's so disappointing. It should have been me. But okay, two more. Clutch. Kobe. Goat. Michael. Boom. Done. Those are pretty good answers. I want to say it had more of a contemporary flavor. Uh, It did. I didn't didn't go back into the... uh, the history of the game, but that's mostly because you were supposed to, I was supposed to do the first one that came to mind, which is fair, which is, and, fair. Those, and those all felt right. Uh, that was fun. Maybe we should run that back sometime. No, I like uh, that. So we got for our long shot feature, we have 11 year old Jamaican native Dominic Darby who won the X prize connect code games competition after creating his own video game, 11 years old created his own video game. It was his first video game he had ever made. It took him months to create, and he was one of 3,000 people who entered the competition across 80 countries. Now get this, Dave. He taught himself how to code through YouTube and reading books. Wild. I try to teach myself things through YouTube, like how to cook a meal or you know something a little simpler than coding a video game. But yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's it's absolutely impressive. Uh, Eleven years old, just you know, rolls up the the bootstraps and just fires up YouTube and some some books. And all I of don't a know sudden, if you roll up bootstraps, but I get the I get the point. Rolls up his sleeves, I should say, <laughs> um, and yeah, wins a, uh, an X Prize competition. So X Prize is a California based nonprofit that sponsors these types of public competitions. Uh, and Dominic's winning game was called How to Fall and allows players to move through different levels while trying to avoid obstacles. So if you get a chance, check out How to Fall, the creator, our guy, Dominic Darby, long shot feature of the week, just 11 years old. Yeah, good stuff from Dominic. Um, All right, like you said, we've got two good combos this week. Great combos, I would even say. Uh, Dunk, if you had to use a word to describe each, what would you go with? I would say for for Jay, I would say thorough. It was impressive how how well spoken he is on these topics and how well versed he is. He clearly has these conversations and arguments uh, well thought out 
and has just done his research. So I would say thorough for Jay. As for Dylan, I'm going to kind of tie into the theme of the episode. I'm just going to go spring, you know, seasonal springtime. Talking to Dylan, we're talking masters. Immediately, I associate masters with spring. Uh, We also had some birds chirping in the background of his conversation, thought of spring as well. Uh, And just golf. Whenever Whenever I think of the game of golf, I always think of springtime just because it you know, golf season's right around the corner. Yeah, beautiful. With both guys, we sort of planned on keeping it short. Jay, we just kind of wanted to talk NCAA tournament. With Dylan, we just wanted to talk Masters. Both guys were such a pleasure to talk to, though, that we end up going in, you know, different directions with both. But, uh, yeah, excited for these. And uh, Well, if it's such a good conversation, why would you put a cap on it, you know? We were just kind of running. Exactly, exactly. Welcome back into the Long Shot Podcast, joined by Duke basketball legend, five-time Emmy nominee for Outstanding Sports Personality, New York Times bestselling author. I read that book, by the way. Uh, Actually, in eighth grade, I took my first charge about a week later, so I thought you'd enjoy that. (laughs) Um, But perhaps most importantly, he was named one of the top 100 most essential follows on Twitter. So please give him a follow if you haven't. Uh, That's by Sports Illustrated. Welcome in, Jay Billis. Jay, thanks for joining us. Duncan, thanks for having me. And and by the way, I'm a six-time Emmy loser now. I've lost (laughs) Emmys in multiple years, so I've gotten really good at clapping for other people. Hey, you were nominated, man. You, you know, you got you to at least get nominated. Then we can uh, take care of the winning from there. Um, I, I want to dive right into the tournament. Obviously, just finished up on Monday night. I'm, I'm curious of your perspective. Obviously, you're, you're super plugged into, uh, you know, the college basketball landscape. For maybe the casual fan, they hear of Gonzaga all year long, the undefeated record, the chance to be the first team since IU to do it all the way through. Were you surprised at the outcome uh, of Monday and, and Baylor just kind of running away with it in a lopsided victory. Yeah, I was surprised that Baylor kicked their ass. I was not. I was not surprised Baylor won because uh, those were the two best teams all year long. It was kind of. It kind of gave me the same feeling as you know going back to 2006 with uh, with football. You know, kind of USC versus Texas when USC was you know considered the best team. They get beat, and then people question, well, were they really that good? You know, that as if you're not allowed to lose in sports. And then also this year's Super Bowl, like it reminded me a lot of, you know, sort of what we thought about the Chiefs going into the Super Bowl, that man, who's who can stop this offense? This offense is unbelievable. They got Mahomes and and uh, they got bullied by the Buccaneers. And it was kind of the same feeling going into this game. And, you know, Duncan, the, the you know this better than I do, actually, the the landscape has changed so much in sports where people talk about, you know, they've asked us as the commentators to pick who's going to win, to tell you who's going to win because it riles people up and it gets interest up and all that stuff. Nobody knows who's going to win. Like we, we know, we think we know like the basis on which the game will be won. Like here's where this team has a strength and the other team's got to counter it. Here are the great matchups and all that, but we don't know who's going to win these games. And that's kind of the beauty of it. But somehow we've positioned it as, as you know, if somebody says this team's going to win that they're automatically better And then if they, how did we get it so wrong? Like we didn't get it wrong. One team won. Those were the two best teams by far. And, uh, and Gonzaga's kick-ass good. Like they're really good. They got beat and, and, you know, being a competitor yourself, 
like, you know, you go into a game and you're ready to go. And, and sometimes you get it handed to you. And other times you hand it to the other team. And if anybody knew, we'd all be in Vegas sitting by the pool, you know, counting our money. We None of us know. Yeah, it, I, I find it funny because Tuesday morning you wake up and you see all these headlines of, you know, what does Gonzaga need to do to get to the next step? Uh, you know, all, all, all this kind of stuff as if winning a national championship isn't really, really hard. Uh, but but I guess that that's kind of a, a question that I have for you. And obviously, Mark Few's done an incredible job there. But I'm curious if you think, and obviously, I, I don't want to ask you to kind of like psychoanalyze Mark Few and his recruiting or, or maybe moving forward. But does this put pressure on him potentially to take a different approach of he just got a guy in Jalen Suggs who was a five-star recruit in the past they'd kind of done about it a different way do you think that this will kind of maybe push him to kind of go that route because they've shown that they can get those type of guys well I'll answer that by giving you an example first in your league um, there there's a saying that I think a lot of front offices have and that's be really careful of what you do when you think you're one player away you know the idea you think you're one player away be careful what you do because you're really good now, you know, that kind of thing. And Gonzaga, like, you know, contemplate this for a second. So, so Gonzaga has gone to six straight sweet 16s. They're the only team in the country that's done that. They've been to four of the last eight elite eights. They've been in two of the last four title games. They're doing it as well, if not better than anybody out there. The only thing on their resume that they don't have, and it's the only thing you can point to, to say, aha, they're not all that is they haven't won it yet, but you know, coach K before he won his first one went to four final fours. And, uh, and I think it was three title games, something like that, or maybe, maybe it's two title games before he won his first one. And I think Roy Williams, you can point to a lot of that stuff where guys had been there before their programs had been there before and they hadn't done it. And, and, you know, you, you know, the feeling I know it having, haven't been in the title game and fallen just a little bit short. And, and you're like, I, for some reason that, that sticks with you longer, uh, than losing in the second round or something. I don't know why that is, um, because you know, you're good enough and it didn't happen. Um, and so when, like if Gonzaga was just kind of going to sweet 16s and elite eights and all that stuff, we'd be going, man, what a great program. That's terrific. But when you start talking about them with Carolina and Duke and all that, which we're doing now, and we should, cause they're that good. I don't think they have to change anything. I don't think they have to get a different kind of player. Um, they may need to get a little bit stronger physically in certain spots, but there are a lot of teams that need to do that. I mean, they just went up against an extraordinary team, the likes of which we don't see that. Like, you don't see Davion Mitchells very often. That dude's going to be in your league doing the same thing uh, next year, and, and we're going to be talking about why wasn't he drafted higher. Like, I think he'd be top 10. But, but he's a disruptive force. And those other guys are legit. Um, and so, you know, they, the worst we can say about Gonzaga, if you really want it, the worst shot I think we can put at them is like they were the second best team in the country. But how, how awful is that? I want to stay on Baylor because I think that's the other side of this is once you do finally get over the hump, and especially a program like Baylor and how far they've come in the last 20 years, what does that do for them moving forward and how much easier it makes the, the job for uh, Coach Drew? It, I don't think it changes all that much. It's just validating, you know, that, that you don't have to answer any more questions. 
And, you know, when are we going to hang this banner? When are we going to do this? You know, they're, they've proven they can not only play on the elite level, they've been doing that for, for a dozen years now, but they've proven that they're championship, that, that they're championship caliber and they've done it. And for some reason, and I don't know why this is in, in America, but, you know, you wind up once you, all the things that are looked at as, as failures and not winning a championship in a way is a failure. You failed to win the championship, which is your ultimate goal. But, you know, you get to the championship game. That's an extraordinary success, too. Um, but somehow a championship sort of spotlights and illuminates all the other things that were looked upon as failures. And then they're they're considered tremendous successes. So now Baylor's Elite Eights and all that stuff. This is their first Final Four uh, under Scott Drew and, and obviously first championship. Um, that that makes everything else shine in a different different way. It's not it's not sort of a, a there, there's no, that wasn't the limit before. And so now the, I mean, you know, now the question is, can you do it again? Like, those are better questions to have to answer than, than can you do it at all? It's, it's the, you know, can you win the big one is a, uh, that's a, that, to have to answer that question sucks um, as a player, a coach, whatever. It's, it's not a, not a fun question to have to answer. And, uh, and then when you, you know, for the players, like the coaches get to do it every year, like they get to keep trying every year and the fans. I mean, this may, this may be the wrong time to tell you this story, but after we, my team lost in the NCAA championship game, we were, we were 37 and two and had won more games than ever, any team had ever won in the history of the game. We lose by a bucket in the title game. And the next day, uh, next morning, uh, my roommate and I are, are going down the elevator in the hotel to, to go get on the bus, get on the plane, go back to, to Durham. And a couple of Duke fans were in there. And one of them said, one of them's kind of shaking his head and says, man, that was a tough one. You'll never know how hard it was to lose that game last night. And we're looking at the guy going, I think we got a pretty good idea how tough it was. <laughs> you know, I, I bet you it hurts us more than it hurts you. Like you get to be a fan forever. And that was our, that was our last chance at that. But that's the way people think for some reason. I don't know why that is. I want to change gears a little bit um, and, and talk to you about kind of this player empowerment movement. Uh, you've been a huge advocate for players for a long time now. And specifically this year, there was, I felt, a lot of traction in, in players really finding their voice uh, around the tournament. You saw the not NCAA property you know, hashtag that was thrown around, T-shirts that were being worn. I think we've seen in some of the adjustments that NCAA has made recently that they have kind of been feeling some pressure to at least – I don't know if you want to call it appease or or acknowledge the shortcomings uh, that that is the NCA in, in so many respects. I'm curious of your take on if you feel the NCA has is this an all time high pressure moment for them? Are they feeling this this moment uh, particularly with with players really finding their voice? Because I think I think it's one thing for with all due respect analysts uh, and people who have played the game to put pressure on them in a whole different one when the actual players who are going out there are starting to find their voice. Um, is, is it at an all-time high, do you believe? Yes, because the players now realize the leverage that they have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look, there, there could be a time when the only thing the players can do is to walk out. But uh, I'm not a fan of that, you know, having to do that because I think it, it – uh, there are a lot of variables that go with it, but there are all kinds of pressure points on the NCAA right now. Um, one is what's going on legally. So as you know, there's a case going on. Uh, the, the United States Supreme Court is deciding the Alston case. So that'll be decided in the next month or two. And that that's, that's limited in what it's going to do. It, it's more about uh, educational expenses, but it does sort of 
take bricks out of the foundation of the amateurism principle. And I think, you know, if you're reading the tea leaves, I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, but it seems like they're going to side with the players on that. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. Then there's the legislative side that uh, states around the country are passing NIL legislation. It started in California, Florida, and now I don't know how many states there are. It's going so fast. And what that tells me is that that's what competition looks like, that a couple states do it. Other states are going, well, we can't let be left behind in recruiting because the most important thing in winning is players. It's not coaches, it's players, and they know that. And, and so the market is reacting to the competitive landscape changing. And then you have the NCAA. Now, they could have settled all this themselves by passing reasonable rules, and they've chosen not to do it because they just don't want to. And one, the one thing that has not changed uh, from the time I was a player to you is how the athlete is treated. You know, every, everything else has changed. Like they, they've changed with the, the, the landscape in making money. You know, you hear coaches all the time say, I didn't get into coaching for the money. Yeah, okay. Well, you didn't turn it down either. And, and you know, every game now is on television. Um, they are monetizing everything as if it's the NBA or the NFL. And one thing that people miss is, you know, the NCAA, the organization itself is not a league. Uh, it, it is a collection of leagues. So the Southeastern Conference, the Big Ten, the ACC, those are all their, their own little NFLs and, and NBAs. Like the Southeastern Conference is its own NFL. It's its own NBA. And so those leagues compete against each other for media rights and for players. And that ultimately, that's what the Supreme Court's going to be deciding is, is market competitors conspiring. And actually, a Supreme Court justice, Justice Kavanaugh, used that word conspiring to limit the wages of one class of, of worker being the athlete. And one thing that, that I, I can't, I'm trying, I'm always trying to think of ways to, you know, make the argument to, to the average Joe, that's just a fan who, who thinks that players look what they get. You know, they get these great facilities. They get to fly on private planes. They get this. I'm going, well, the paid employees get it the same thing. And they said, well, the regular students don't get that. Well, the regular students don't get limited is what they don't get. The, here's one thing an athlete gets that nobody else gets. They get limited. And, and more, more non-athletes are on scholarship than athletes. And they're not, they're not limited in what they can earn or accept. And that's really the issue is, is you know, I, I get why people talk about gratitude. They say that, well, these kids, they, they want to infantilize the players. These kids, well, they're adults. It's called men's basketball and women's basketball. They're adults. Uh, and, and then they say they need to be grateful because I didn't have that opportunity they need to be gr as if as if money and gratitude are mutually exclusive. You can be grateful and get your fair market value, too, because nobody's telling a non-athlete student on scholarship how grateful they need to be. It's only the athlete. And and look at all the money we're making off these athletes and look who's benefiting to the greatest extent. It's administrators and uh, and coaches. And that's great. I'm not saying they should be paid less. I'm saying that athletes should be allowed to compete in the marketplace under the same terms. And that is, you know, sort of not being restricted. And if an individual school, like, like take, take Michigan, for example, because you went there, if Michigan decides, you know what, we're not going to pay our football coach $9 million a year. We're, we're, we're paying this, this amount and we're not paying our basketball coach that, that as much as Duke or, or uh, North Carolina. Uh, and, and we don't want our athletes doing these, then do that, then, then restrict them and see how it works out for you in the marketplace. That's what competition looks like. But everybody banding together saying, none of us are allowed to do this. Like, could you imagine if the film industry 
um, uh, said banded together and say, all right, we're not going to pay. Like, look, we'll give child actors, uh, we'll give them health care. We'll get, we'll, we'll have tutors on, on site for them. We're, we're, let's all agree. We're not going to pay them more than this. Well, well, you think that the child actors, their parents are going to go, they're going to go, no, 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 no. They'll be in court the next day. And, and it's the same thing with athletes. Now athletes are suing, they're winning. And, uh, and the NCAA knows that. And Duncan, that's why you're seeing so many administrators quit now. Like a bunch of ADs are quitting. They're taking their retirement now because they're like, well, let, let, the, let somebody else figure this out. You know, I've made my money and I, I'm out. I don't want to do any. I don't want to do this anymore. And uh, and that's revealing, too. Yeah, the the sentiment that you share in regards to being grateful is one that certainly resonates with me because, you know, I, I came from a small college and I get on campus at Michigan and I'm surrounded by these incredible facilities. All of a sudden, you know, I've been shelling out money to have people train me. Now it's people's jobs to train me. And it took me a little while to wrap my mind around the fact that there is you can be privileged and still be exploited. And and ex- exploitation is a word I think people jump at and how are these kids exploited? They're on, you know, they get all the meals and they're on these these private planes and all this, you know, this, that, and the other. But the reality is, is if you're not entitled to your market value, like you're saying, then there it's a broken system. So my, my question for you is, in regards to the NCA, at what point do they need to get to to get this quote-unquote right i mean i i know it's it's never going to be a uh you know perfect or, or buttoned up to where everybody's happy i understand that but what are at least the immediate steps here that you feel should be taken that we can get this to the point where okay we're at least heading really in the right direction here okay well well first of all on the exp- let me just talk one second about the exploitation thing so when you get pushback on the use of the word exploitation that's a misdirection argument so somebody you know somebody'll say they'll say oh they're not exploited and then they 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 don't like the use of that word so they misdirect the argument from the true issue which is the fair treatment of players to i don't like that word and then you wind up arguing over the use of the word and are they really exploited and and then they don't have to talk about the real issue um, it's actually a clever rhetorical device that they use. But th- to your to your question, the NCAA is in a box now. They've fought so hard for so long on the amateurism hill and, and decided they were going to die on that hill without evolving on it. And they've made so many statements under oath in court that they're really screwed now. So even with NIL, like in, in one of the last cases, well, it's probably the Alston case, but it might have been O'Bannon, but I think it was Alston. It was Mark Emmert who testified under oath that if players are allowed uh, name, image, and likeness rights, they are professionals and nothing more than shills for products. So if you if you take that and another judge says, well, wait a minute, didn't, didn't you say that if they get NIL rights, they're pros, and now you're going to give them NIL rights? So you said you're making them pros. So why should we limit them at all? You know, that's a tough argument. To, that's a tough hill to get across for them now. And so they're, they're going to keep fighting this until uh, the government uh, or the courts tell them they lose. And they're asking Congress to give them an antitrust exemption, essentially, saying uh, we need a law, a federal law that preempts all these state laws and allows us to do this uh, so that we're not getting sued all the time. And I don't think 
I don't think complaining about getting sued is a very good argument. It's like a, it's like an automobile manufacturer saying, you know what, we're tired of getting sued over these damn seatbelts not being safe enough. We'll make them safer. That's the whole reason the court system exists. If they're not safe enough, you know, you shouldn't be asking Congress to say, you know, tell us, tell everybody that this is okay, that, that, you know, enough people, you know, some people can die with the seatbelt issue we have. We shouldn't be asked to spend more money on this and get sued over it. All that stuff. I mean, that might not be a perfect analogy, but that's what they're asking. You know, they're asking the government, let us violate federal antitrust law and uh, give us a, a special exemption. And I don't think that's a winning argument. Uh, they are they are not convincing a lot of people on Capitol Hill, and they're certainly uh, losing deference from the court system. The judges aren't looking at them the same way they have in the past. So the best thing they can do, in my view, is like, look, nobody complains about Division Two or Division Three, because what what Division Two and Division Three does is in line with its mission. They're not selling that product at a high level, so the fact that they don't pay, they don't allow this, they don't allow is not is not an issue. Division one has to change. It has to admit we are in the entertainment business and we can do both. Uh, we can have eligibility rules as far as how long you can play and all that stuff. You have to be an enrolled student, but everything else we got to we got to let go until they're, they're willing to do that. We're going to keep going down this road and the players are ultimately going to win. Um, there's no way to keep doing it this way and 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 have the system stay so restrictive on only one class of person. And there's nothing analogous to this. There's not like they can point to something else and well, this is the way they do it in this industry or this industry. Every other industry, you know, the the you get whatever you can uh, you can bargain for. And so I see the NCAA ultimately evolving and, and losing in this. And the the best way to do it is get everybody that wants to play big time sports under one umbrella and everybody that doesn't under another umbrella. Um, cause I'm getting tired of people saying in the, in the industry saying, boy, you give name, image, and likeness rights. We're going to be cutting sports because we can't pay for it. Like how does division two and division three have sports? They don't generate any revenue. Oh, they pay for it. Like, how do you have an English department? You pay for it. It's really not that hard. And they've constructed this system, which is a, just an accounting system by saying that, well, if football and basketball can't pay for it, we can't have it. And their their expenses magically rise to the exact level of their revenues. Like that's, it's all crap. And, and any thinking person with objectivity knows it. Um, it doesn't mean that sports aren't great. It doesn't mean that being educated isn't great and having a scholarship isn't great. It's a wonderful, valuable thing. But they give them to non-athletes. They give the same scholarships to non-athletes and we don't call it pay. And we don't demand that they're grateful and we don't demand that they forego other opportunities while they're in school. We only demand that of an athlete. And I think that's profoundly wrong. So if things do progress that way, if things get remedied, players are now allowed to be paid, they're allowed, allowed to use their name and likeness. Do you see a world where that increases the disparity between you know the big big time schools and some of the mid major low major schools, or is there a world where that evens the playing field a little bit? Well, it's both. Um, I think it will even the playing field in the sense that more more teams will be able to compete for better talent. So uh, you know, give you an example using Michigan again. So if Michigan and Central Michigan, like there's not a player that Michigan recruits that Central Michigan can get right now, not one. If they're allowed to pay, 
Central Michigan can probably pay more for Michigan's fifth or sixth best player than Michigan would be willing to pay. So they can probably be competitive for, for that player that they would never otherwise get. Um, so you've got that. But I don't think the competitive landscape will change as far as who wins and loses because it's already skewed uh, based upon what you can spend. So there, there are spending controls uh, uh, and wage controls on what you, can, what you can provide to an athlete, but there are no controls in spending in any other area as far as like what you can pay for facilities, whether you can have private travel, what you can pay for coaches, all that stuff. So there, there's no level playing field now. Um, and the truth is, we have 357 teams playing Division One basketball for one reason. They all want money. And, and the money comes from not only being successful on the court, but it comes from being in Division One. They can look at their donors and say, hey, we are, we are playing with the big boys. And you know, we need your help. And, and people are more willing to contribute to something they think is, is a big time thing. Like, I promise you, there are more donors for Division One programs than there are for Division Two and Division Three. I mean, and, and a lot of that, you know, they have a lot of people who contribute that don't give a, give a damn about sports, but they have a lot of people that contribute that only give a damn about sports. And if they're not in division one, they cut out the, the ones who only give a damn about sports. And, uh, and so they're running a lot of different businesses. They're running their education programs and their outreach and, you know, they got a hospital and all this other stuff, but they also have an entertainment industry and that is the sports side. And there are wonderful lessons that athletes learn. I'm not discounting any of that. I'm very grateful for all the stuff I learned, but I was also um, a, an entertainer and, uh, and they, they, they pushed that out and sold it as entertainment. And that's the only reason we played this year. Um, and look, I think it was the right thing to do to play football and basketball this year, but think about this, name me one non-athlete student that a major university put on an airplane in the last year for a university event. You can't because they didn't. So the idea that, well, the kids just want to play. So all your non-athlete students, they didn't want to do anything. They didn't passionately want to pursue anything. Like you shut everything else down and only, only played sports because of the, inter because of the, the contracts you had and the money you had to generate. And the product you had to deliver um, there, like I, maybe there is one, but I haven't, I've asked that question a lot and I always get a <laughs> in response, not name me one non-athlete student that a university put on an airplane to travel for a university event in the last year. There, there isn't one. I can't give you one. <laughs> um, I, I feel like we could go on this all day, uh, but it seems you have a tea time that you got to get to, uh, which which I don't Just blame balls, you for. Man. Just practice it. <laughs> hey, man, I love it. Um, but hey, thank you so much. Uh, incredibly insightful. If there's one thing I've taken away from this, it's that you clearly really know your shit when it comes to this <laughs> stuff. I mean, you you've had it seems these these, uh, these conversations many a time. So I certainly took a lot away from it. Um, but thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us a little bit and shine some light on the tournament, but also just everything that's going on, you know, with the NCAA and, and this player empowerment stuff. No, my pleasure. Good luck to you guys. And thanks for having me. It's my honor. All right, go uh, go flush a seven iron for me. I appreciate <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs>
Welcome back in to the Long Shot Podcast here with Dylan DeChair, senior writer for the Golf Magazine and Golf.com, author of 18 in America. If you haven't heard of it, please go check it out. Former professional golfer, Williams College alum and friend of mine, uh, and he just has a pulse on everything golf-related I think has the potential to be our future golf correspondent, uh, depending on how this goes. But uh, Dylan, welcome to the Long Shot Podcast. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Hopefully my bosses aren't listening. You're going to think I'm getting poached by the the Long Shot pod over here already. (laughs) So uh, yeah, man, it's good. This has been like a long time coming. We first partnered up on like an intramural soccer team probably like seven years ago or something. So it's, uh, it's coming full circle here. No, absolutely. Uh, I remember that vividly, actually. But uh, before we get to some Masters coverage, I, I first want to talk about your story a little bit, or really have you talk about your story, just because you have a, a unique and interesting one. So can you just give the listeners a little bit of background um, on, on everything, basically, Dylan DeChair? You know, I, I want the, the playing experience, how you ended up with, with Golf Magazine and Golf.com and, and everything in between. All right, yeah, so I guess to, to give the quick version, starting with uh, what got me here. So I grew up in a small town, uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts, where you and I both went to school, uh, me for longer than you, Duncan. But uh, once I decided that I was going to go to college in my hometown, I figured that I really needed to get out and, and see the world a little bit before I you know just spent four more years in the same town of 7,000 people. So... I, uh, long story short, ended up spending a year just living out of the back of my car, driving around the country, and the the common thread for the year was that I played a round of golf in every state, uh, in the lower 48. I didn't have the funding to get to Hawaii or Alaska. Or the creativity, but, uh, I might re- add. Or the creativity. You know, that's that's a fair critique. I was in, like, the Pacific Northwest in, like, November, so Alaska did not seem like it was going to be golfing possible for uh, for many more months. So that kind of held me back. But yeah, I there there could be like a Hawaiian sequel there somewhere of getting to uh, that fiftieth state. Um, but anyway, so that turned into a a book called Eighteen in America because I was eighteen years old at the time. I was playing eighteen holes in every state, and it was really just a way to see. The country through the lens of the game of golf so i tried to play the the cheapest public courses you know the two dollar four dollar like fifteen dollar municipals and then also to play the the most expensive or most exclusive private courses and kind of get a full uh a full picture of what golf means in america so that was step one and I think hopefully, Duncan, you're an owner of 18 in America by now. I am. I am owner. And I've actually I've read it multiple times and I've actually passed it on to several people. Um, so if you've seen an uptick in sales, I'd like to take some personal responsibility for that. All right. I love to hear that. So after that, I, uh, I spent four years at Williams where I played on the golf team. I was a, a solid uh, contributor to our NESCAC team. I was not like an all-American or anything like that. So I was not like destined for for greatness or stardom. But me and a buddy, Cody Semorak, who was in my year um, and played, actually played some JV basketball. So there's a little little more crossover. Um, We decided after, you know, playing pretty well in a couple summer tournaments, like, all right, man, what if we weren't just playing Division III golf in New England where you can really play 
golf for like two months out of the year, out of the school year at least. What if we just devoted all our efforts full time, maybe like you did, you know, in the bubble, Duncan, devoted our efforts full time to playing golf, getting better at it. Could we actually get to that next level? So we turned pro out of college. We moved to Florida. Uh, we spent, I spent uh, just over two years chasing the dream and um, got a lot better, but also got to the point where I realized that I was not to the point that I needed to be to, to really like live the dream, so to speak. So I, I did a bunch of writing about it. Um, long story short, I wrote a retirement article uh, for a golf magazine, and that was my entry point into this world of, of writing about golf and covering golf. And here I am in Augusta, Georgia this week. So things are going well. I'm living a, a blessed life this week, especially. No, uh, your, your retirement piece is, is one of my favorites, actually. Uh, if you get the opportunity, uh, as, as the listeners out there, please, please check it out. Uh, you have some just interesting stories in behind the grind of, of what it really takes uh, to pursue professional golf. I'm actually curious here. Uh, you said that you finish up at Williams and you make the decision to turn pro. <laughs> so is, is, that, is that just as simple as... You know, like, could I just decide to turn pro tomorrow? I mean, I, I'm giving you way more credit than that because you're a really good golfer. But like, what is that? Like, shine a little light on. And obviously, you do in your article of, of kind of the steps that it takes. But there's a lot that goes into just being a professional golfer. I think in, in your little recap, you undersell uh, what that really encapsula encapsulates. Jeez. Um, yeah. Just talk a little bit more about that. So, yeah, I mean, the actual process of turning pro, you know that scene in The Office where Michael Scott, like, wants to declare bankruptcy, so he just goes and, like, <laughs> screams, like, bankruptcy in the middle of The Office? It's yeah. pretty much like that. <laughs> you basically just show up to a tournament and you say that you're entering as a professional, and then suddenly you can't really be an amateur anymore, for a little while at least, um, especially if you if you make money. And they've you know, gone back and forth on what it exactly means to be an amateur versus a pro. And that's a whole another story that I got embroiled in at Williams actually at the same time. But, uh, but you, you can just become a pro and enter like a mini tour event. And there are a bunch of these that at the bottom level of the game, it's essentially just pay to play. So I turned pro at the Providence Open in Rhode Island, which is you know, the winner got maybe like 10K if you, if you win like a, a two-round tournament. And if you finish 10th, then maybe you get like 600 bucks. So like at the entry point to the pro game, it's not a glamorous life. You're basically playing for each other's entry fees. And uh, so a lot of what I did, especially to start, was that sort of thing, was like basically competitive practice where you're you're trying to raise the stakes so that you get you get used to playing um, under the gun and getting better in those competitive situations, and then theoretically, then you train up for um, you know making it through qualifying school, which is really how you get to the next level. Um, and there's different levels to that. So the peak of my professional career, so to speak, was I qualified for uh, the Canadian Tour, which is it's probably double a baseball. Um, it's not like the G league. That's the next level up. That's like the, now it's called the corn Ferry tour. It was called the web.com tour. Um, 
so the Canadian tour is like one rung below that, but it's still, I mean, it's just filled with these studs that were like playing D1 golf in at Georgia and, you know, Texas. And I remember I played my first practice round there once I'd qualified um, to get up there. I played with this guy named Tony Hakula and he was, you know, this little guy from Finland and it's like, uh, oh, you know, what's your, what's your story? How'd you end up here? He had just won a national championship plan for the University of Texas where he played number two and Jordan Spieth played number one. So I was like around the greatest golfers I'd ever seen. And this guy was like, couldn't believe that he wasn't on the PGA Tour. So that was like, it was a real adjustment from the NESCAC. I'm curious, you you talk about the Canadian Tour um, quite a bit and, and you just alluded to it earlier of it's this weird mix of elite talent but also these basically suboptimal living conditions. It's almost as if the the talent doesn't line up with the situation and the circumstance. And that's something that I've experienced in my career, particularly with the G League, in that I'm a strong believer in that the G League is, talent-wise, the second best league in the world. Now, people are getting paid $30,000 a year, you know, below minimum wage, essentially, you know, tra- taking multiple flights, staying in, uh, you know, th- th- two, two and three star hotels. Now it's gotten a lot better. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, you have this large pool of talent. What did you learn in your experience of just how important that mental component is to actually being able to realize that talent and take that next step in toward towards you know consistently being your best version yeah that's a really it's a really good question because i think this is maybe something that actually does translate from something like golf to something like hoops which is the the thing that seems to separate the guys that make it from the guys that don't is the ability to kind of be relentless and like come back after you screw something up i mean i can't tell you how many guys i played with that looked like you know top players in the world for five holes or something and then something goes wrong you hit a quick hook off the tee you know something happens a putt lips out and these guys would just start to hot wire um something they would they would blow a fuse basically and just start to lose it mentally where the very best players yeah you see guys with tempers tiger is a perfect example um who gets pissed hits a bad shot gets pissed and then moves on like instantly it's like you get i think i can't remember exactly what he said but maybe you get nine steps or something after you hit a shot and then you move on you compartmentalize you don't let that stick with you so i think that that was um that was definitely my experience in terms of seeing like the separation between the guys that had talent and the guys that really were going to have longevity and and we're going to move up in the game and could perform you know even when the times got tough and um yeah it's funny that the travel thing we realized at a certain point that of the 150 or 200 guys on the canadian tour probably 175 were losing money um maybe more just based off of travel um so if like take me for example I missed most of the cuts up there. Um, But I also had this sort of status where I wasn't sure if I would be in the tournament each week. So if you are not in the tournament, you can play in the Monday qualifier where they have a few spots open each week. 
So my schedule would be like, I would be playing a tournament in uh, say Winnipeg, and then I would go from Winnipeg to, uh, you know, I'd have to go somewhere in Ontario the next week. And if I, I don't know if I'm gonna miss the cut or make the cut. So I've got to have a flight ready for like Friday, but also Sunday. And then I don't know if I'm in the Monday qualifier or not in the Monday qualifier. So then I've got to be ready to like get to a practice round there. And so if things are going well, then you can kind of keep them going, but you can get into a vicious cycle of like bad golf, just building on bad golf and then like compounding with a lot of travel expenses. And yeah, so you can see things that, uh, once you get things going on the wrong path, it's tough to really come back. That aspect of golf is so interesting to me because it doesn't exist in many other sports. And you talk about this in your retirement piece, the battle against time that professionals are are against because, and, and you talk about this in your piece, but someone like Duncan, if he's not elite by this age, it's pretty certain that he's not going to play professional basketball. But in golf, it's like, you're always chasing that peak. It's like, well, I could peak in five years. I could peak in 10 years. So how did you come to terms with retirement when you're, you know, you're in your twenties, I assume you feel like you're as, as good at golf as you've been. How do you decide to, to pack it up and walk away? Yeah, that's a really good question because I, I was continuing to get better. Um, you know, there was a stretch where I was trying to kind of evaluate where I was and I got to the point where at, at my home course, um, like I played a month without shooting a round that was worse than even par. So that was like kind of the, the level I'd gotten to. I wasn't shooting like 63 all the time or anything, but I was playing really consistent golf. Uh, my, my threshold was getting a lot higher, but I played a few of the bigger tournaments, like the qualifying schools. Um, this stuff is so expensive that eventually I just ran out of money. So that was a part of it. Um, and then you face the, uh, the decision to, you know, either pursue like investors, but I didn't feel like I was a great investment. So I felt a little bit weird about that. Or you get a job to support you chasing the dream. But at that point, you're not setting yourself up to probably perform your best. So it just reached a point where it seemed like the calculus was against me. And, and as good as I felt like I was getting, you know, it didn't seem like I was going to be close to being like top 10 in the world at any one part of the game. And that's pretty much what you need to do. If you're not hitting it, uh, you know, 330 with some of these guys. And, and I was medium length or a little above average length, probably for the, the mini tour stuff that I was playing. Um, but certainly not out there with like Bryson or Dustin Johnson or something. So if you're not going to do that, then you better be one of the better people in the entire world at hitting your irons, at putting, at uh, you know getting up and down around the greens. And it, I, it felt like I was far enough away from that that the, uh, the calculus sort of pointed me in the direction of trying something else. I wanted to ask you, Dylan, I wanted to go back to your time at Williams and specifically that year with Dunk. I think there's a belief that Duncan playing Division Three basketball, it was just this glaring misrecruitment this guy who goes to this school and is clearly an NBA player and stands out. You were going to Williams basketball games his freshman year. Did you see it that way? Like when you watched him play, was it like, oh my God, this guy's not supposed to be here? 
Or was it just this guy's pretty good at basketball, but he's still, you know, this scrawny six, 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 seven kid looks like a lot of other division three basketball players. I'm really glad you asked this because I feel like there's a couple different things that need to get cleared up. Like, first of all, growing up as a kid in Williamstown, like Williams basketball is legit. Like I watched Williams beat division one teams when I was a kid. Um, So it's definitely like. Yes, it's a Division three school, but it's a pretty it's a pretty great Division three school. Um, with that said, there were a few people that stood out like during my college career um, that just felt like, man, you don't really belong in this exact game. Duncan was very much in that category. I mean, Williams had, you know, we'd always joke that everyone on the team was like six four and could just you know shoot like forty five percent from three. And Duncan, like, had a, had a better handle, was four inches taller, was just, like, smoother all around, and could shoot, like, 60% from three instead of, like, 40%. But, yeah, it was, like, one of the most ridiculous sharpshooting teams, though, to just be around. Like, I'm sure Duncan lost shooting contests to some of these other guys all the time because, like, everyone, everyone had to shoot the three to be on that team. That was just like how the system seemed like it was run. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Duncan, but it was a really good team that he was on, but yes, he still was far and away the best player on the court at all times. I I'm actually, I'm going to push back on that um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, I, you know, and I've, I've maintained this stance for a while. I actually was not the best player on that team. Mike, Mike Mayer was the best player on that team. So shout out to him. Um, he was a, a senior all American, uh, my freshman year and was, and was really, really good. You make a, a completely valid point that, that Williams college basketball is a really high level of basketball. And, I've gone to great lengths to defend Division three sports because I think you anybody, have you have yes yeah I think anybody that competes in college that's a high level in and of itself and I I can't stand it when you know it's the D one or bust or you know if you're not getting a scholarship then you're not legit or anything like that if if you are good enough to get recruited uh, by any college but let alone you know a place like williams or uh you know a place of that kind of caliber then you play your sport at a at a very high level but i i once again i I will push back on that i was the best player because i don't think i was um we could transition away as much as i love reminiscing uh on on the williams times i knew i knew williams talk would get him (laughs) strictly like quickly off the subject i want to unpack a quote from one of your articles in that you say in golf, everyone is kind of trash right up until the moment when they're not. It's a sport where progress is confusing. And you go on to to reference, you know, PGA tour golfers who, you know, wait, 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 and, and go through these, you know, crazy paths of playing Q schools and web.com and, and corn Ferry tour, you know, everything until they finally get their break. And it actually reminds me of, you know, Davis and I have a couple of friends who've gone out to LA to try to break into the acting world. And it's like, you know, as an actor, it just takes that one moment to, to break through and start to build that confidence. And something that I've experienced in, in my career is so much of success is dependent on the ability to develop a resolve to be able to withstand adversity and failure. And that if you can, just like you said earlier, keep showing up, then that alone is probably your your biggest strength and separator. 
what is it that you have seen from maybe it's guys that you played against uh, on you know the PGA Tour of Canada or just in Q School events coming up? What have you seen as we talked a little bit about the mental component? But what is what have you seen as a big time separator between the ones that are able to break through and the ones that aren't? And maybe these are guys that you've covered um, that are now doing their thing, you know, weekend to weekend on the the PGA Tour. I think, I mean, you mentioned the the ability to just keep coming back over and over, and I think that's it. But I think it's also guys that fall in love with the process of becoming great and guys that aren't just, you know, willing to put in a couple hours, but are actually actively interested in that. Um, that's the thing that fuels them. So it's not just a matter of putting in X hours at the golf course per day, but it's like every shot you hit on the range is hit with a purpose. Um, every time you, you do something at the course, during practice, there's an intentionality to it. Um, and there's also a sense that you're all in and you're cool with being all in. It's a little bit of this, you know, burn the boats mentality. There's no backup plan. Um, it's a reason that a lot of the guys that, you know, play on some of those lower levels come from pretty privileged backgrounds, I would say. But the ones that make it through aren't necessarily um, yeah, I mean, golf, golf, like on a certain level is all always restricted to like people that have means to some extent. That's a whole other topic We're we're, we're hoping that gets a lot better. But, um, but the people that get through to the next level are a lot of the time, not the people that had a putting green in their backyard growing up. Um, it's people that, 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 yeah, really fall in love with that grind that come back to the grind that don't blow a gasket when something goes wrong. Um, but instead just work pretty analytically um, and passionately at getting better and sticking with it. And it's, you know, I'm actually interested if you feel that that, that trash line applies to basketball at all, Duncan, because I feel like it would be less true, but maybe, you know, given like the arc of your career, like you probably had some moments where you felt like, oh man, like what, what is my upside here? What's my future? And then suddenly here you are. Yeah, I I think part of the reason why I, that line jumped out to me is because I do think there's truth to it in in a variety of fields. I think that the maybe the difference is that it's more common in maybe football or basketball that you see. And once again, I, I don't think in general success is linear or progress is linear, but I think it's more common in those sports that you see that and that you know, the number one player in the, in the high school class ends up being, you know, a college all American and then ends up being a lottery pick that trajectory in that arc is incredibly common. I, I think there's always, you know, anomalies to that. And, and I think that I kind of fall into that camp of somebody who took this kind of roundabout, uh, crazy kind of story, but, but absolutely. I, I, I think back to, you know, even when I was finishing up at, at Michigan and what the next step of my career looked like and the vast majority of my opportunities was overseas in that I was pretty much under the impression that I was going to be, you know, starting my career in Latvia or Bosnia or, you know, some, someplace, you know, Lithuania, something like that. Um, and, and then I ended up, you know, somewhere in between Sioux Falls, South Dakota and South Beach. But I mean, I, I'll, I'll take it. Um, 
So I, I definitely think that that there's some truth uh, and there's some some comparison there. But the thing that's so interesting to me about golf is, is you highlighted is that there are so many stories like that of guys that kind of bounce around and take their time and then they get that moment, play well at the right time, and then break through. Um, you, you bring up, and, and since you brought it up, I, I want to take it there. You bring up how golf has historically been a somewhat class-restricted game. And there are so many people, and and you and I have had these conversations that are lobbying and hoping for an increase in access. A question that I have for you is, is how do you actually, and not maybe you personally, but as an ambassador of the game and, or maybe USGA, how did they go about remedying this? I know that there have been concerted efforts, but what can they do additionally to continue to afford opportunities for everybody to get involved because I think that that's when the game will be at its best is when there's just a wealth of opportunities for variety of people and and a variety of backgrounds yeah I think the key and, and there's been a ton of initiatives you know the first T is massive there's there's all these programs that do work with um you know organizations all over to try to get more people involved but I think it's just so hard without a true grassroots approach um, and getting people in the community because at the end of the day right now the people that are making those decisions are pretty far removed from the folks that they're trying to get involved in the game Um, and and that's the probably the biggest issue is like golf as a world is still pretty separated from you know like kids in the inner city say so I, I volunteered a little bit in uh at this school in Harlem when I lived in New York that would, um, they actually set up a golf program, got one started at a charter school there. And, you know, I remember going and riding with their coach, like pick these kids up at school. And then it hit me much more so like how much of a departure it was for these kids to be going to golf practice after school. And so I think it's one thing to have initiatives but then you need the people on the ground doing the work and supporting those people is going to have to be like the, the biggest key to, uh, to the game. I mean, you say like, yeah, it shouldn't be my responsibility on some level. It does fall to people like me, I think, to keep highlighting that. And I don't know, I do this little column every Monday. It's called Muni Mondays just to highlight the, uh, stories from the world of just public golf, municipal golf, because, you know, the natural storylines in the sport are highlighting places like Augusta National, where, where I'm going to go right after we hang up here. Um, and so just to shine a spotlight on some of the stuff that's happening where the greens fees cost, you know, 10 bucks instead of, oh, you can't even get in there unless you know a rich person. That uh, I think that sort of thing is hopefully helpful in some tiny way. You know, for those that may be watching on on YouTube, it literally looks like you're on the first tee uh, there there in Augusta. Um, but yeah, I, I want to transition to the Masters uh, because, as we alluded to maybe earlier, that, that now uh, officially you are our golf correspondent. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about Augusta, the Masters, the event coming up this weekend. But just before, I, I kind of want to take the the ten thousand foot approach here first. What is it about 
the masters, everybody that I talk to that that's been talks about how it's just like the pinnacle of live sporting events that if you have the opportunity to get there, uh, to be it, to see it in person that you have to take advantage of it. What is it from your perspective, um, about the event that just makes it so special? It's really the moment when you walk onto property, I think the first time and you just see, you know, I saw an interview with one of the guys that's in charge of communications there and he said you know for us perfect is that's just good enough and like that whole idea is it's absurd it's ridiculous and the whole place is is ridiculous to some extent but still when you walk onto property and you know it's not just the shots that you've seen on tv but the whole property kind of opens up in front of you and it's you know anyone that goes there for the first time their first reaction will always be like oh man it's so much hillier in person than than when you're at home the elevation changes are so crazy so that's the first thing but then yeah also seeing like people know the tee shot at 12 that par three where everyone hit it in the water uh when tiger won in 2019 people know like the risk reward par fives on 13 and 15 and they know like the tee shot up the chute on 18 but then to see the way those holes are actually connected to other holes and and that the property is actually a real place but it's a place where everything is bright green and there's not a blade of grass out of place uh it's really surreal and i guess uh, yeah one one thing we were just talking about because we just went and got our covid tests on property and you know there's a guy walking around the edge of the property uh with a garbage bag and with uh, you know, sort of like what what would look like a trash picker upper, but this guy is not picking up trash. He's picking up sticks and pine cones <laughs> because that just won't fly to be on the ground there. So that's like the level of detail that we're talking about. So you talk about the elevation, the hilliness of the course. Are there some other characteristics of Augusta that make it particularly challenging for golfers? I think the average golfer would have a really hard time with um, like the tight lies. There's not much rough, um, which, you know, in general, you'd think, yes, that makes it easier, but actually around the greens, it makes it much more uncomfortable. So if you miss your spot, not only it does it miss the green, but it just starts rolling and it keeps rolling. And then you don't really have the extra fluff of the rough to like help you hit a chip back up towards the green. So I think, you know, if you were playing as a, you know, a guy that maybe shoots 90 somewhere else, you would actually have a fine time getting off the tee at Augusta. It's pretty open. Like you wouldn't lose a ton of golf balls. It's just when you got around the greens, you would start to really suffer. Um, and you would really appreciate just how precarious a lot of those short game shots are. It feels like you're talking about my game. <laughs> it's not Davis. directed at you, Davis consistently in the 90s um <laughs> but we're changing that all this summer man we're Facts. we're getting our games right this summer uh 100 all right give us a little update insight into the fields maybe a favorite to win who do you like why uh or, or just maybe in general just some like fun storylines you know if people are tuning in on thursday yeah. what to look out for I mean, of course, the biggest story in some ways in golf is always Tiger Woods. So his absence is is always lurking there. But in terms of guys that are actually on property, uh, I think Bryson DeChambeau is playing the best golf of anyone in the world right now. Uh, he was kind of a letdown in the fall Masters, but I don't think that should 
convince anyone that he's not going to play well this time. I would be pretty shocked if he's not at least in the picture um, come Sunday. Dustin Johnson has not been playing quite as well. He ran away with things in the fall. He should be in the mix, but I don't like him quite as much as Bryson. Everyone's really high on Jordan Spieth, who just won last week. I think there could be a little bit of a letdown, but again, hopefully he's someone that's in the picture. Um, if you guys are looking to invest, I'm high on a guy, Xander Shoffley, who's in that second tier of guys. He's, he's like sort of a perpetual sleeper, hasn't won a major championship yet, but you know, the course is looking firm and fast this week. It's it's hopefully going to play a little bit more like U.S. Opens sometimes do. And so you look at guys that are really steady, really good irons players. Uh, so someone like Xander Shoffley could play well. And then if you're looking further down the list, uh, my guy Will Zalatoris, who I ran into in a grocery store yesterday, um, is just a really good ball striker, really good irons player, and I think that's going to be at a premium this week. And he's more like a hundred to one, so he he could be a good investment. Does uh, does Will Zalatoris get hyped up when he gets recognized in a in a local grocery <laughs> store? Actually, so yeah, I, I I say I ran into him. I didn't even say hi because we were I was checking out and we were just stocking up our like rental for the week, and so I was holding like. 24 Bud Lights and then like a thing of red wine. So I just felt like such a degenerate that I was like, ah, maybe you just play this one cool and uh, <laughs> we'll say hi at the course tomorrow. Uh, real quick, Dylan, I'm interested in your take on the difference of playing with limited fans. Does that make a real impact on pressure, you know, moment? Is that a real thing in your opinion? It's a real thing on Saturdays and Sundays in the final groups because it's just so different. Um, at the Masters in particular, but also at a bunch of these other, you know, tournaments like the Waste Management, places that would typically have massive crowds. There's something very different about playing golf when you kind of abstractly know it's on television versus when people are right there. Um, and, I mean, one of the funnest parts of my job has been being there when, say, Tiger Woods is in contention. Um, or Rory McIlroy is in contention to a, a lesser degree, but there for for the reputation golf has as being you know slow and boring, there are a few things that are more tense and and would make your heart race, like having to hit a pressure shot with that many people watching, kind of in silence, just waiting to erupt. So I think that. It's hard to quantify. I think that's why we have a hard time talking about it because, you know, some guys would actually probably perform better um, with all that scrutiny. Some guys would crumble and there's no real way to know who's who. And there's it's hard to put like a value on it. But yes, it makes a difference for sure. It has to. I remember watching uh, in 2019 uh, Tiger's tee shot on 18 at the Masters and seeing the gallery lined up the shoot right there and just envisioning myself what I who I would have hurt <laughs> who I would have potentially killed uh, if I was trying to get off the tee in that situation uh, just absolutely no clue where the ball would have gone probably like a sharp hook or a, just sprayed it to the right and just you know decapitated somebody um Jeez. all right let's let's uh let's move on here to our undrafted segment kind of wrap it up we appreciate you we know you have a big week ahead so we want to get you out of here um so basically 
we actually it's been a it's been a little while since we've done our undrafted segment but basically the uh the overlook underappreciated aspects right so we're going to give you three different topics i'm going to start it off you referenced your 18 in america early so you've you've been a, a united states traveler i want to know your undrafted state in america the uncoveted gem of the u.s lower 48 i should say okay all right so since i'll just go with just from a golf perspective since this has been a golf theme podcast i think that north dakota is super slept on in general just very slept on in general but uh but from a golf perspective i think you know, you would maybe think going in like, oh, are there even golf courses in North Dakota? But what I found there was some of the most spectacular scenery, landscape, you know, holes that you're playing up like through the Badlands um, and some pretty spectacular golf courses for cheap prices. I mean, when you compare them to like near a major metropolitan area, you're paying 15, 20% of the greens fees that you would pay for some spectacular golf. So North Dakota is flying way under the radar. Love that answer. Yeah, I love it too. Um, all right, I'll give you the next one. We've got, uh, this one could go a, a variety of ways. We've got an underappreciated aspect of golf. So through this conversation, we've heard some birds chirping in the back from you, Dylan. I don't know, maybe it's being out in nature. Maybe it's hearing birds chirp. Is there something when you think of the game that is underappreciated? All right, a sleeper piece of golf. I think a sleep. I think what people sleep on is the exercise that you get from golf. I mean, Ooh. there's rounds in your carts where where you're definitely not so much. But if you walk 18 holes, that means you're walking probably seven to eight miles carrying something on your back. So like, you've earned your beer at the end because like <laughs> that's that's no joke. I mean, how often do you just walk around? like town for seven or eight miles in a given day that's going to be a big walking day but in in a round of golf you do it uh you know you just do it in four hours so i think people sleep on the health health benefits of playing golf love that advocate for the game in in so many ways uh my my answer to that for sure i literally don't care what i score if I flush an iron, I'll come back the next day. Mm. <laughs> like literally all I need is just like a handful of flushed irons and I'm hooked. That, that's all I need. Um, all right. The last one we got, this is for maybe your recreational golfer, a golf skill that should be meticulously honed. So if you're just, you know, kind of a, uh, your recreational golfer, you're, you're playing the local muni, whatever it is. Um, if you want to, elevate your game and if you can really improve on this one aspect of golf uh what would it be so i'll give you two quick ones because one is kind of based on the other like you got to be able to get off the tee and get the ball in play um and maybe bryson is setting a bad example for the youth by just trying to fly the ball 400 yards but if you're just trying to go out and have a good time and not ruin your day by looking for a golf ball in every hole it doesn't matter if you're hitting it, you know, 175 off the tee. If you can just put it in play, you're going to have such a better experience. Um, and then the other one is just just practice your putting a little bit. Like, nobody does it. And, and I play with a bunch of guys. Actually, I just moved to Seattle. I play with a bunch of 30 handicaps. These guys will grind on the driving range. And then, you know, maybe hit like two putts on their way to the the first tee and then three or four putt every single hole 
like every hole. There is an, it, a two putt is a, just a rarity. So uh, I think that just, yeah, go spend a little bit of time on your putting because that's where you take half your shots anyway. I feel personally attacked. I felt <laughs> like that was directed at me, uh, but I'll, I'll take it for what it is. Um, all right, Dylan, man, we, we really appreciate it. Uh, once again, Dylan is boots on the ground in Augusta. He's got yes. a big week uh, coming up covering the Masters. But uh, thank you for taking the time, man. You have an incredibly interesting story, and obviously we go back a little ways, so it's, it's always nice to chop it up. So thank you. Guys, it's been a joy. Good to be with some, uh, some NESCAC folks. And uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted from Augusta this week. Thanks for having me. I love, love it. it. And uh, if you have the opportunity, please check out Dylan's uh, writing. He's an incredibly gifted writer and uh, yeah, just a, a joy to read. So be on the lookout for that.